Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The North has been a blank, snowy canvas for our best and worst fantasies for thousands of years, home to biting winds, sea unicorns, fearsome Vikings, and even a wintry Atlantis. And it is also home, of course, to indigenous communities whose existence and culture could be inconvenient to certain myths of an Aryan North. Historian Bernd Brunner explores this curiosity cabinet of a region in his new book, Extreme North, translated from the German by Jefferson Chase. He argues that this region was as much invented as it was discovered by the European explorers, colonists, and armchair enthusiasts who ventured there. Encounters with the cultures of the North would inspire epic storytellers like Tolkien and Wagner, grifters like James McPherson and his poems of Ossian, racists like Hitler, and countless other complicated figures like Franz Boas or Robert J. Flaherty, director of Nanook of the North. Bernd Brunner joins us on the podcast to explore the outer, icy limits of the known world and why it still has a hold on us today. Thanks for chatting with me, Bernd. Well, thank you for having me, Stephanie. So how do you define something as broad as the North, let alone the extreme North? Yeah. And what compelled you to write a whole book about it? <laughs> well, that's a huge task to define it. Uh, first of all, um, there is, uh, for me, as a Central European, it comes kind of naturally to define the North as the region, maybe the, the north of Germany, uh, Scandinavia, and a little bit beyond. For the purpose of the book, I chose to focus on exactly this region, but I went a little bit beyond. I also included um, Greenland, of course. I included uh, Iceland. I included also some parts of uh, Canada. And I'm also talking about Russia a little bit, which used to be considered as a part of the north in the past before it came to be seen as east and how how did i come to write this book um you know uh, there are different ways to explain this first of all i've traveled extensively in scandinavia over the decades i learned uh, swedish at some point which is a very beautiful melodic language as you may know uh, i traveled with uh swedes especially in northern sweden can like kayak canoe trips um, trekking, also into Norway. Um, I mean, there are, I have very, very vivid memories and images in my in my mind. And I think without these memories, um, I could not have written this book. At least not this book, as it turned out to be. And um, the, the previous book was a book about winter. Actually, it's kind of a cultural history of winter. Um, it chronicles the ways people have experienced winter over the centuries and of course um, <laughs> Scandinavia also has a place in this book it's called Winterlust but it's different I mean this is a different story uh, in that in the North book I'm more looking at the ways in which the North has been portrayed has been seen from the outside over the centuries and uh, the challenge was or the what I, what I found very interesting was to pull like different things together and to look at them over the course of time. I mean, there are many different books already or articles, academic works also on various aspects that I touch upon in the book. But my idea was to 
to take them together and to to see how they connect over time and to create a kind of a catalog of ideas and images of the North. I think catalog is the right way to talk about the book because there's just so many ideas in there and, and so many shifting conceptions of mm. what the North is. And I didn't even realize how unstable the idea was that North wasn't even up on a map initially. Could you talk about like how fuzzy, how unstable the idea of North even was? Yeah, I wish I could, you know, ask all the people in the past who dealt with the North in one way or another and why they drew this particular map and why they put uh, the, the South where it's North today. And this also, I think, points towards the question, you know, why the North is at the top of the maps, you know, and it's basically a matter of convention, actually. Very often in the past, you could see uh, the East at the top, for example, with Jerusalem in the middle. You have some Arabic um, maps that show the South um, in the North, so to speak, you know. But at a certain point, um, also the compass plays a role because the compass needle points, you know, to the top, to the North. The North Star plays a certain role also because it remains always in one place, almost exactly uh, due north and um, and of course also the European map makers I mean all the maps that we know from the 15th 16th century onward they were created in Europe and uh, they were lived in the, they were living in the northern hemisphere so there's also I think a kind of explanation why um, the north is at the top I mean how old is this idea of the north I guess it's it's hard to know where to pinpoint it exactly because oral history predates written history mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, you were scooped. There was an 11th century cleric named Adam of Bremen, who you write about, who did the first systemic study of the North in the 11th century. Mm -hmm. So he's the first. But how how pervasive were, you know, written studies of the North or the idea of the North? When did people start like clumping it together as one thing rather than like Scandinavia, Russia, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Germany? Well, it's uh, related to the knowledge that people had about this area. And of course, in antiquity, uh, the, the knowledge about the North was very limited. Um, the problem was uh, the waters were very dangerous. If, if ships went up there, they very often didn't come back uh, to tell stories about the North in Greece, it was usually associated with the northern winds. It was like a, the equivalent almost. And over time, you know, very slowly, people began to explore um, this region, this unknown region. Of course, um, they knew also about the people that they they thought were dangerous and they had experienced them as, as very dangerous too, of course. And um, this all contributed also to a reluctance to venture further north. And why should they venture there? I mean, there was no, um, before these natural resources were really no, like cod, the things that we know today, or uh, whale bone or something like that. Um, there was no impetus really to, to travel north. But of course, um, as they went north, they explored more and more and they came to divide the different regions up. And uh, we have all these crazy maps uh, with 
islands in the north that don't exist and because it was really an, a, a very slow approximation towards what what was really there it is so interesting that you start with this engraving of this room full of things mm -hmm. from the north that were collected by a man known as as Ole Vorm and it's it's the Museum Vermianum and it's filled with a, a lot of odd things it's like a curiosity cabinet right. in a way but it's much bigger than a curiosity cabinet because you've got like a baby polar bear and a narwhal <laughs> tusk in there and um that you know you need kind of a lot of space for that what was important to you about this picture because you start and you close the book with it yeah yeah well it i think it has something to do with the fact that i'm a collector myself i'm um i just go to flea markets i I, I like all kinds of curious objects and this just fascinated me. You know, it was kind of, as you know, it was kind of a fashion at the time in the Renaissance to have these Chamber of Wonders. And I came, came across this one and noticing that most of the objects in this uh, Museum Bormianum really came from not very well-known uh, areas in the north. I mean, he has, he entertained contacts with many researchers with many people who were actually on the seas and they brought him these pieces uh, he didn't always have an exact idea where they came from but um, he, he he collected them and it, it was a very special uh, collection compared to the other ones um, that were there in in like italy and also in germany in france and for me it's kind of a Kind of an allegory of the knowledge of the north uh, also as you may have noticed in the course of reading the book a, like a point of orientation because Ole Vorm keeps popping up here and there you know because he was a researcher of runes for example um, he studied the old Norse writings he did some translations into Latin uh, somebody else later translated them into French so um, yeah, it's this chamber. It's like a, it's an image of the North, a point of orientation, really, for me in this book. Mm. Yeah, I do want to talk about runes because Vorm was involved in um, the study of ruins and then the translation of Old Norse mm -hmm. into other languages. Mm -hmm. And I think ruins and Old Norse, too, but runes especially are just such a perfect metaphor for the like romanticism and the fantasy that mm -hmm. we attach to the idea of the North or places we don't understand or really know much mm -hmm. about. And then when you actually dig into it and decipher them, they're just normal. <laughs> they're just like ordinary people. Like there's this extremely ornate <laughs> runestone you talk about north of Stockholm mm -hmm. that, you know, is like the site of all this speculation. What could this possibly mean? And it just says, Torkel and Fuluga erected this runestone and also the bridge named for their father, Sten. Olaf made the ruins. <laughs> yeah, but uh, people were wondering about this and they were making speculations about this. And uh, actually, I'm talking about how the discipline of archaeology really underwent an enormous transformation in the 19th century. This was also, of course, the time when Darwin came up with this theory. So people realized that um, human history was much, much longer or must have been much, much longer than the Christian dogma that said 6,000 years until then. So there was a need for explaining, you know, what place in history do these runes have and where do they come from and why were they created? It's actually, I mean, the signs used on rune stones, they, they go back 
actually to the Mediterranean region, that there are, there are connections to the old world that, that can be created. So they were not made up. Uh, I mean, they were changed for this particular purpose to be to be shown on the on the rune stones. But there are connections also with older parts of history that are slowly coming to the surface that are being researched. Yeah, it's a more complicated story than I think the initial romance would let you believe. Of course. But... Like so many things related to the North. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we haven't really talked about the people of the North yet. We've just talked about the idea of the North um, coming from mm -hmm. people located south of the North. What happens when, you know, Central mm -hmm. Europeans encounter people from Scandinavia for the first time? How does their interaction change the way that the North is perceived by non-Northerners? Well, I think it's a little bit difficult to generalize this. I mean, I'd selected uh, different travel diaries by various people and um, they, they kind of each, each, each on their own describe how they encountered the people. I think one interesting example is that um, this was in the early 19th century when Ossian was all the rage. You know, Ossian is this presumed Scottish bard that lived in the third century. It was basically invented by the Scotsman James MacPherson. And uh, people very soon also realized that it's basically an invention. It's not, um, it's not the truth that he purported to be. And uh, at the time, there was a close connection between England and um, or Great Britain and Germany. There was a pro-British mood, so to speak. So there were some German travelers going, women also, to like Scotland. And they, they were basically, they had read Ossian and they were looking for, you know, signs where, where Ossian had lived and they, they projected their ideas um, about him on certain people they met, for example. It's very strange. But over time, people read other people's travel diaries, so their idea about the North became more um, precise and was not as naive anymore as it as it was in the, in the, in the beginning. I'm I'm interested too in if there are inflection points in this conception of the North. You know, maybe I mean we, we're speaking in generalities just because it is it's a general idea. But you know, is there are there certain dates or times when areas or countries were added to the north in the cultural imagination mm -hmm. like it seems like the date when germany was absorbed into the north had a lot of ripple effects you know once mm -hmm. people started connecting scandinavian old norse aryan mm -hmm. history mm -hmm. to germany you know you had a lot of sometimes deadly ripple effects yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I mentioned Ossian. I think Ossian helped to bring, you know, Scotland into the cultural imagination, so to speak. Another important factor was, of course, this translation by Paul-Henri Mallet, in, uh, which was published in Geneva in 1755, uh, who translated um, the old Norse tales from Latin into French. And they were immediately brought into German, English, other languages too, it's like a, a whole new world opened up and it was eagerly taken up by uh, romanticists, poets at the time. Not all of them, uh, 
for example, Goethe, he was um, not too crazy about them. He said um, he liked them, but he preferred to stay with Greece, his favorite field of the imagination. So this is really when there was kind of a frontier, something broke and something became larger. The imagination opened up towards Scandinavia. People realized, oh, there's something of value. And it's also an alternative to the uh, Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, of course, you know. And this is also where there is an undercurrent also of anti-Semitism already, very early. Um, like this turning away from, you know, from the Holy Land and from, from uh, Jews and in part Christians um, implies also that they are really looking for... A, um, another tradition, maybe a heroic past in the north, you know, uh, there's also a hunger for nostalgia and all this like developed in the course of the 19th century. It's a long story and it's, I think it's very interesting to see these connections because I think really this um, fetishization also almost of the north that happened in the, towards the 20th century with all the catastrophic uh, outgrow of this you know in the nazi during the nazi time and all that it's not really possible without these romantic impulses you know and this this starting to um discover the north and the tra traditions to sometimes speculate even about um an, an origin of mankind in the north you know there were some very extreme examples also you know it's not by accident that the book is called Extreme North, actually, because there are many extreme ideas uh, connected with the North. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you can you talk a little bit more about those? Because it's I think it you're correct. There is no there's no Hitler and there's no Aryan nation without this connection to, mm -hmm. you know, these very old, romanticized, completely unrealistic ideas about the North, going back to like putting Atlantis in the North or like mm -hmm. coming up with all of these fantastical origin of man stories or like the Caucasus. This really concerns like this insecurity uh, in the field of archaeology, in the field of explaining uh, human origins, which, which happens like in the early 19th century, mid-19th mid century where suddenly um, the biblical story of creation was discovered as false, basically, it was a, as a fable, and this dogma collapsed that uh, human history is just 6,000 years old. Also that the Indian languages have a connection, also Persian or Farsi, as you said today, have a connection with some of the European languages, what we call today the Indo-European or Indo-Germanic languages, you know. So it was fair to, to assume that there's a connection with India, but there were other people who wouldn't believe that. They were, they were thinking, ah, oh, the people must have come elsewhere. And it's, I found it always a little bit strange in America um, that people, at least it was like 20 or 30 years ago, people were still talking about Caucasians and this, this kind of really uh, racial, uh, this racial classification system, which is not really which is a myth, of course. But there were some other people who, in this time when everything was really fluid, when, when theories about uh, the origin of mankind were still forming, they also thought that there were other ones, fringe theories, of course. I mean, it was not the generally accepted idea at the time that, for example, the cradle of humanity is to be found at the North Pole 
or uh, in Atlantis, for example, or in the Vettern Lake in South Sweden, you know. Um, it's, it's kind of funny to, to see that today, uh, now that we know that, um, you know, the, the, the earliest humans originate from, from the east of Africa. And uh, looking back, it's really quite fascinating how this, this evolved, this early phase of um, explaining the origin. Yeah, I think what's interesting, too, about the North being the origin for various groups of mostly mm-hmm. white people is that mm-hmm. the actually indigenous inhabitants mm-hmm. of the furthest mm-hmm. North reaches, the Inuit yes. and other indigenous tribes who are not white, don't really mm-hmm. figure into it. And and they're just sort of left out or I mean, could you talk about how they're incorporated or ignored or sort of excused away from these ideas? Well, I think um, one ex- explanation is that they were, to, up to a certain point, they were not really um, considered as human, really, as, as being on the same level with Europeans or Americans. But I, I digged out some, uh, some interesting uh, travel reports again. I mean, there are some, some really outstanding researchers uh, one is by the name of uh, William Stephansen, who was Canadian, who really, um, like in, in the early 20th century, began to um, to single out the strengths that uh, Eskimos, as he, as he called them at the time, Inuit, as we call them today, or First Nation peoples, have. I mean, they are this, this enormous capacity to, um, to survive in such a harsh climate, you know, and to, the techniques required for this, and uh, he he expressed a lot of um, a lot of sympathy, and he really wrote some very groundbreaking uh, books that that helped to establish a different understanding of the Inuit, and br- like kind of brush away the arrogance of uh, many of the polar researchers, you know, who wouldn't believe that they have to use skis or wear fur or use sledge. There's another uh, wonderful woman I discovered by the name of Agnes Deans Cameron, who traveled to Northern Canada. She wrote a book called The New North, and it's really, I think it's from 1909, uh, where she also helps to cast aside, like to throw away the, uh, the cliches about the Inuit and develop a new understanding and really uh, tells the readers that there's lots to learn from from them and that they have an important culture of their own. So it's a process really over time that they became recognized for, for what they really are. But it was a long and painful uh, way. Yeah, Cameron's and the other travelogue are really a contrast to the way that mm-hmm. the Inuit were kidnapped, really, and yes used as, as like a traveling sideshow for the North in a lot right, of, right. in a lot of ways. I mean, it was really heartening to read about these particular exceptions, just given how barbaric other Europeans' mm. treatment of these people was. Absolutely. I'm also uh, mentioning the very interesting character of Franz Boas, you know, you, uh, who's also quite famous in America. I mean, he's a also groundbreaking uh, anthropologist, of course. He was German originally from a Jewish family, and he he did a lot of research uh, in America. He became American. He worked at the um, Museum of Natural History. And he was, although he had this understanding, you know, of cultural relativism, of 
um, of, of Inuit people really being uh, a culture of, of their own, with, with their own rules and their own practices. He was also implicated in this, what you just said, this kind of showing uh, showing of, of people who had been brought to be uh, to be um, examined and there, there are some very ugly details about um, about this story uh, that I'm also detailing in the book and um, yeah it's uh, it has to make us think about um, the injustice and the cruel treatment as you say in in the past well how does our contemporary conception of the north and you know various affinities for it positive and negative compare with you know the really sentimental mindset that we saw in like the 18th and well, the, the think, 19th uh, centuries things have changed of course but the mythical north is still very much alive today you know uh, you have a lot of uh, stories uh, you know where vikings are exoticized um there's a huge um, fascination for these heroic, dramatic, adventurous stories, you know, that's like in so many parts of popular culture, you can still spot that today. But there's, of course, also a softer side, if you want to call it like that, uh, to romanticize the North, um, like in terms of lifestyle choices that you have. You can, you know, this huge Hygge phenomenon, you know, that... Uh, that helps you to achieve peace in your immediate environment and to have everything cozy and warm or um, something like free luft sleeve, which I think came up during the pandemic, really, this Norwegian concept of spending uh, lots of time outside and to enjoy the, you know, the cold coming to your body. And, uh, and uh, of course, there's a... <laughs> I mean, there, there, there's a whole range also. You have these appropriations also of the extreme right of Nordic symbols uh, that that are reproduced in tattoos and all kinds of things. You know, if you want to, I mean, if you have, I'm trying to have a clear look to the to the left and to the right, so to speak. And I'm uh, I'm just I'm, I understand myself as an observer. I don't really want to judge about this or that. You know, but I'm. I'm observing and I'm surprised what I see. I think the romantic idea about the North is still there, but it takes very different forms today. We have links in the show notes to Bernd Brunner's new book, Extreme North, translated from the German by Jefferson Chase, as well as a selection of specimens from the curiosity cabinet that is the book. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>